And I want to start just by reading a psalm that is, is sweet to me, and it's a good reminder of why we do what we do as we come to hear the Lord speak. That's Psalm 119, 130. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, just the verse. It says this, The unfolding of your words gives light, and it gives understanding to the simple. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And we come every Sunday for fellowship, uh, but we also come to hear the Word of God taught and unfolded for us. So my plan this morning is to be in Third John. In Third John. So we have a chance uh, to work through this whole letter. It's only 15 verses. So I think we can do it. Uh, I'm going to do my best. Uh, We are going to spend most of our time, though, on two verses, verses 9 and 10. But the driving, uh, I guess the the mind behind it is, it's the same thing with every passage, every time we preach or teach, every time you share the Word with your children or grandchildren. It's the fact that it's the unfolding of God's Word that gives light. And so our prayer will be that, as we work through Third John, that God's Word will be unfolded and light will come to us and we'll learn and grow and be more faithful as a result. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we do need your help. It's very clear to us that we are unable to do that which you've called us to do in one sense, apart from your enabling grace. And we thank you that you have provided that grace in abundance, and that there is nothing we lack outside of Christ to do that which you've called us to do. And this morning, you've called us to sit underneath the letter of Third John, and we pray that as we look at this sweet, brief letter, that it would be uh, illuminating, Lord, that you would, uh, your Spirit would work and be operative in our lives and in our hearts as we hear and as we think through this passage Lord, we pray that you would accomplish your good purposes in our heart. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity to study this text and for the opportunity to gather as your church this morning. Lord, would you bless your word and bless us as we receive it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've entitled the lesson, Egotism in the Church. Egotism in the Church. And what I want you to see as we work through this letter together are the devastating consequences of unrepentant sin. The devastating consequences of unrepentant sin. Specifically, the sin of living a self-oriented, or self-centered, or self-focused, or self-fill-in-the-blank kind of life. I'm going to call this, for summary purposes and consistency, egotism. We're going to call this egotism, unrepentant egotism, which is the practice of talking and or thinking about oneself excessively. The practice of talking or thinking about oneself excessively because of an undue sense of self-importance. So reading the definition is convicting, isn't it? (laughs) The 
practice of talking or thinking about oneself excessively. The Puritan John Flavel said, Self is the poise of the unrenewed heart. It's the poise of the unrenewed heart. It's our default. Your default is self. My default is self-focus. But one of uh, the chief reasons that Jesus came to the earth uh, was to give his life for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and was raised. Self, if it isn't put to death, will grow and grow and grow and produce devastating effects around you. It'll ruin your life, and it'll ruin the lives of everyone around you. And what we're going to see in 3 John is an example of someone who had great theology. His theology was in line. He would, he would you know, if he was alive today, he would assent to the Westminster Confession uh, with a few modifications, of course. Um, he would be, you know, in our circles, of faithful Bible teachers, He was a faithful man in the early church, and he was an influential leader, and he had peers that were excellent and apostolic even. But because he failed to take his sin seriously, to put his self-love to death, it grew and produced all sorts of wreckage in his life. The man's name is Diotrephes. You've probably heard his name, uh, but he's featured in two verses and third John. But what I want to do is read the whole letter and we'll work through it all really to get context and focus in on verses 9 to 10. So let's read the whole letter. Third John, beginning in verse 1. The elder, this is John, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from our And from the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you. But I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly. And we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. And greet the friends by name. 
Now, right away, you can see that 3 John is one of the most personal letters in the New Testament. And it's written uh, to a man named Gaius. Gaius was most likely a a wealthier member of a church uh, who had an excellent reputation, and he was being faithful. And John is commending Gaius, really in the first eight verses, for his exemplary life and continued to commend him to persevere in what he's doing. John the Apostle wrote this letter sometime after he had written his gospel in AD 90. So 1st, 2nd, 3rd John follow the gospel of John. And you'll remember from church history uh, that John was the longest living of the apostles. Right? The Jews had tried to kill him. Uh, the Romans had tried to kill him. But this was a man who was invincible. Uh, and he lived uh, to a very old age, such that if you read church history, the early, the early church fathers, uh, they say that John lived to the age that he had to be carried to every church meeting. Right? He couldn't walk. And it was said that his repeated phrase was, little children, walk in love. Right? Little children, walk in love. And that was his repeated phrase to people. Love one another. Well, it seems that as John had lived uh, and he continued to be faithful, he amassed a large following of people. So he had these disciples. um, And they just, like any man does, something like, um, well, it would be dangerous to make parallels, contemporary parallels to the Apostle John, so I'm not going to do that. But we see men who are faithful, they tend to attract other faithful men, right? And John had disciples that would follow him and, and, and serve John and help him to do the work of ministry. And specifically, there was a group of John's disciples who were uh, missionaries. And these missionaries were faithful, and they were lay people for the most part. And what they had done was they left everything, and they were committed to proclaiming, preaching, teaching the gospel. So they traveled all throughout Rome teaching the gospel. You'll also remember that in Rome, in God's providence, there was a, 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 just a, a very effective network of roads that these missionaries could travel on. Right? Travel was easier than it had ever been in Rome, such that the gospel was able to advance in ways that it, it perhaps wouldn't have been able to advance in other seasons. Well, these missionaries were traveling all over proclaiming the gospel, because the roads were so um, well-maintained and travel was uh, just really so easy. The problem, though, was lodging. Right? You could go down the road, that's no problem. But so could robbers. Right? So could enemies. Right? And so what happened was, there was nowhere for these Christian missionaries to stay. They could travel, but they were dependent on other Christians for hospitality. They were totally dependent on the Christians to open up their home, to let these missionaries in. And these itinerant missionaries would travel throughout the Roman Empire, and they would depend on the churches to provide places for them to stay. And we see this really in the New Testament. And one town, you know, Christians from one town who were going to another, would send a letter of recommendation ahead of their traveling missionary to commend this person in the sight of the other people. We see this in Acts 18, 27, where Apollos wanted to go to Achaia. So the brothers in Ephesus, in Acts 18, 27, says this, they wrote to the disciples 
in Achaia to, wel- to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Right? They just forwarded a letter on. We support Apollos. He's a faithful brother. House him. Commend him in the work. Often these letters would include the commendation along with other issues to be addressed. And that's almost what we have in 3 John. It, it's so close to being a letter of commendation for a man named Demetrius. You see that in verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony. And you know that our testimony is true. Here's a man, Demetrius, who's faithful. Bring him in, house him, show him hospitality. Well, because these traveling missionaries faced such dangers, the concept of hospitality became increasingly important. Right? Christians are hospitable people. But it became especially crucial for these missionaries. If the gospel was going to advance, they had to have places to stay. And so in, in 1 Peter 4.1, Peter commands Christians to be hospitable. It's interesting. The word here is philozenos. You're familiar with the word xenophobia, right? The fear of strangers, people who aren't like us. Philos is the word love. So hospitality is the love of strangers. Literally, the Christians were called to love strangers. And these were Christians whom they had never met specifically. And what John does in 3 John, in the first eight verses, is he commends Gaius and his faithfulness. He specifically commends him to be hospitable, to continue rather, to be hospitable. Gaius has already proven to be faithful. We see that in verse, really verse 2. We see John writes, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. The idea is to continue to prosper. Keep on being faithful. Be prosperous and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad, here's his faithfulness, for I was very glad when brothers came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. Demetrius, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Keep being faithful. And John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. In verses 3 to 4, John expresses his joy that Gaius has persevered. He's continually walking in the truth, standing against the tide of spiritual corruption. We know that John is going to mention a man named Diotrephes in just a few verses. And what he says about Diotrephes is not good, but in the wake of Diotrephes, uh, his sin and the results of his sin, Gaius has continued to be faithful. And John commends him for that. And he's essentially saying, John, or Gaius, keep it up. Press on. And bring in Demetrius and house him so that the gospel can advance. That's essentially what Third John is about. But there is a, a serious problem, and we'll get to that in verses 9 to 10. But first, let's look at verses 5 and 6. Gaius had been faithful, but in verses 5 to 6, John is specific on how Gaius has been faithful. So someone tell me how John describes the faithfulness of Gaius.
He had been hospitable. How do you get that, brother? Yeah, the stranger. That's right. Yeah, he's, he's treating these people with love and kindness and warmth, the brothers and brothers who are totally strangers. Is there any other thing you can see in verse 6? I'm going to ask a question in a minute, Nita, where that's going to be the answer. You're just ahead of me. We're on the same page. You're just moving a little fast. He says they've testified to your love before the church. Gaius is a man who gives. If love is to give what we have that others need, Gaius is a man characterized by giving. He gives to the brothers. He's giving to total strangers. He's being hospitable. He's loving. He's giving. Then look at verse 6. There's another element here. How does John describe the ministry of hospitality? What what does it look like to be hospitable according to verse 6? Second part of verse 6. Exactly. You will do well to send them on in their way. It means provide what they need to keep up the good work. It's fascinating. Look at that last part of verse 6. Send them on in their way in a manner worthy of God. Manner worthy of God. What do you think that means? Excellence. Who agrees with Russ? What did you say, brother? Generous. I think that's right. I think to, we could maybe capture it another way. You provide for them in the same manner that you would provide for the incarnate God. And you would do it with excellence and generosity, right? In Matthew 10, verse 40, we read this. Jesus says, He who receives you, all right, who's the you? The disciples. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. Right? A manner worthy of God is treating them as if you would treat Christ. If Christ comes and knocks on your door, what would you do? You would would get everything in order. You would stop what you're doing. Your whole entire attention would be on our Lord. Our priorities would shift. Totally. Who cares what our afternoon plans are, right? Uh, Because Jesus is here. Now, this is not a stretch. Uh, Turn to Matthew 25. I want you to see something. To treat them, to send them in a manner worthy of God, 
Certainly to do it with excellence, generosity, kindness. Treat them like you would treat Christ. And, and we see this in Matthew 25. Really verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before Him. And He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave Me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave Me something to drink. I was a stranger And you invited me in. That's hospitality. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And notice verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? We don't know what you're talking about. Verse 40. And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of, the, of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. To the extent... That you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Who are the brothers of mine? Those are Christians. Even the least of them. The most inglorious among us. I'm not going to ask you to identify who that might be. None of us thinks it's us though, right? That's, That's egotism. and We need to repent. Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Your care for the least among the church was as if you were caring for the Lord Jesus himself. Now, how will that reorient our vision of hospitality? Even in the church, right? I mean, even on Sunday morning. We should be seeking out the least among us. To love and to care for. Provide for them just as if we would provide for our Lord. He becomes, that individual becomes priority. And we lay our lives down for them. Whatever they need, we give. Um, we send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Right? That's, that's hospitality. And we could unpack that more. And this letter really is essentially about hospitality. Gaius is commended for his hospitality. Diotrephes is condemned for his lack of hospitality. And Demetrius is commended to be uh, the recipient of hospitality. Well, let's move on. In verses, I told you I was, we were going to try to get through the whole letter. I'm still on that. That's still my aim. So verses 7 to 8. What reasons did, does John give for being hospitable? Why should we be hospitable to people, especially to missionaries. Right? This is the focus of the letter is, is missionaries. Why, why should we be hospitable to missionaries? Nita, you've got a great answer if you want to share it. <laughs> Verse 7. 
yeah, be hospitable because these people have went out, right? This is, you know, in the first century, these people have went out and they have uh, committed themselves to not accept anything from the Gentiles, unbelievers. So they're 100% dependent upon your hospitality. So make sure that you don't drop the ball on your end. They've left everything to go serve and take the gospel to, throughout the Roman Empire. You're still home, and you're being faithful at home and making disciples and, and doing what you're called to do, our Lord's called you to do. But make sure you don't fail on your end. Right? It's as if there's a baton. You know, It's a race. Right? It's a relay race. They've, they've run their leg, and they're trying to run their leg, and they're going to pass the baton to you. Make sure you've trained enough, and you're ready that you can get the baton and make sure the race goes on. That's verse 7. They were accepting nothing from the outside. What, what else? Is there, there are at least two more reasons he gives in verses 7 to 8 for why uh, these Christians should be hospitable. Mm. That's right. Therefore, it, what they've done, they've done it for the sake of the name. That's what Ryan said. Therefore, you should treat them as if you, they were the name himself. Right? They've left and done everything for the sake of the name. You should therefore treat them as if they are Jesus. Right? I'm not saying worship them. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't worship them. But serve them in a way uh, that's reflective, that they are ambassadors for our king. Treat them as such. All right, there's one other reason. It's, it's in verse 8. Yeah. He says, we, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with them with the truth. And showing hospitality to those missionaries who are carrying out the work of gospel advance, we are actually participating with them in their ministry. Right? This is not just some uh, missionary fundraising pitch, right? where we know you want prayer and you want funds. We, we know that that's what you need in order to get on the field. Um, this is not some missionary pitch where the missionary says, I want your support and, and I want you to be involved in the work that we're doing overseas. No, this is actually gospel fact. Right? When we support and, and fund missions and missionaries, we are participating in the work that they're doing. Right? So, we, are, we want to be careful that we vet our missionaries because the work that they're doing, we're participating with them in it. For this reason, Second John, John actually calls us to not be hospitable to false teachers. Why? Because when you're hospitable and you serve and support, you're participating in their work. So, we need to be hospitable, support missionaries, because when we do so, we're being faithful to our king and we're participating in the work that they're doing. That's 3 John 8. Now, here we, we come to a, a division in the letter. From verse 8, the tone of the letter dramatically shifts, 
And John has commended Gaius, and now he's turning to deal with an important problem. And John details that problem in verses 9 to 10. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. With all this great work of missionary support and gospel advance happening, in the middle of the church, someone has emerged with the potential to derail this mission. It's a serious problem, and it's at least a fourfold problem. First, Diotrephes had rejected apostolic authority. He was a leader in the church, likely an elder in the church, and he had rejected apostolic authority. Second, he had made unjust and unfounded accusations against John the Apostle. Third, he was refusing hospitality to the brothers. And fourth, he was abusing his delegated authority by removing people from the church who disagreed with him. This was a mess, a serious mess. It was a devastating situation for the church. And they found themselves torn between submission to their elder and submission to the apostolic authority. So the question before us is how did they get there? How did this church, which formerly seems to have been faithful in hospitality, producing great men like Gaius, doing the work well, how did they get to the place where now their church was potentially going to be divided? And, and even now was, was being devastated by the work of one of their elders, leaders. Well, if you jump back with me to verse 9, we see John's inspired analysis of the situation. His analysis really jumps off the page. He says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. That was the heart of the problem. Diotrephes loved to be first. The love for preeminence was the seed that had now grown into such catastrophic devastation. And it was the love for preeminence then, but it started out likely as just a self-focus, right? self-orientation, self-love. I just want to focus on myself for a little while. Well, the phrase, who loves to be first, is formed from one Greek word. It's a combination of the word philos, which means love, and the word protos, which means first, or highest rank in a group. Together, the words refer to a special interest in the leading position. Diotrephes wasn't content to be serving um, under the radar. He wanted to have the leading role. He wanted to have some glory and preeminence. It refers to special interest in the leading position for the sake of controlling others. 
And the heart of the problem was that Diotrephes wanted power and preeminence. It was an issue of pride and self-love that had grown and was producing all sorts of devastation in the church. This is the only occurrence of the word in the Bible, but the concept of egotism, ambition, arrogance is fraught throughout Scripture, right? All right, some of you shook your head, yes. Now I'm going to call you to give an example. I should have had you raise your hand if you agree that it's fraught throughout the New Testament. What are some examples? Can you think of places where the desire to be first or the love for preeminence manifested itself? There are a few, I think of three, that are just really prominent in the New Testament. The politician. (laughs) Brother, amen to that. Let's, let's restrict it to the New Testament. We, we won't finish if we, do that, if we don't restrict it. Who is that? Mm. Judas. Yep. That's right. That is, that's a great example. I have that down as one of mine. Um, I think that's Matthew 20. Well, we won't go there for sake of time, but um, they're on the way, and um, it's, I think in Mark, the mother asks, and Matthew, it's the disciples who ask. Uh, the, The point is that they were all on the same page about this. They wanted to be at the right hand of Jesus when his kingdom came, right? And Jesus asked them, Jesus has told them, I'm about to go be crucified, and they're walking along the way, and he hears them chattering behind him. And then when they get to where they're going, he says, what were you talking about along the way? And, you know, they start looking at the rocks at that point. <laughs> and they're humiliated to talk about what they had been discussing. It was this desire for prominence and preeminence. Can you think of another example? James and John, the rich young ruler, that's right. Yep. He wasn't willing to let go of the things that exalted him. That's right. We can see this in the early church. Uh, remember in 1 Corinthians 3, 1-9, uh, you have this argument happening within the church where people are saying, I follow Apollos. Oh, well, we follow Paul. Oh, well, we follow Christ. And so you have this division in the church. And they're arguing about who they follow. Right? Who is our rabbi? in essence. Well, you don't argue about that sort of thing if you're just humbly seeking the good of another person, right? No, it's a self-focused ambition, right? We want to be the best. We've got it. Oh, you're just following Paul. Well, we're following Christ. Well, we're following Apollos. It's a mess. Turn with me to James 3. This is another, this is a great text that just exposes the problem. We can multiply examples. If we added politicians and, and cultural examples, it would even get more complex. But James 3, we see the fruit of egotism and self-focus, and we see the destruction that it brings. James 3, beginning in verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Notice verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, In your heart, 
Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. Self-ambition, self-focus, self-infatuation does not come from the Spirit of God. It's a fruit of the flesh. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. Verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile thing. The consequence, the fruit of selfish ambition and self-love is disorder. And that is in the church, is what they're talking about here, uh, and what we see in 3 John. But friends, that's extended to your home, to your marriage, uh, to your parenting, to your work life. Uh, You know this, right? Where self-love, jealousy exists, the fruit is destruction and devastation. Ruins relationships, ruins marriages, friendships. It's demonic. But then, verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable and gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good works, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, not by those who tear others down so they can be exalted. And then verse, chapter 4, verse 1, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is, it not, you, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Unrepentant self-love in your heart will grow. Every little sin wants to be a big sin when it grows up. And if you don't check little sins like self-love, the fruit will be, you will be diatrophies, right? You will be the diatrophies of your home, right? The diatrophies of your work. You will be um, parenting like diatrophies, right? You will be the one who wants preeminence. In James 3 to 4, this insightful chapter and verses This is what we see with Diotrephes. He had allowed his illicit desire for advancement and preeminence to go unchecked in his life. And when it went unchecked, it grew and produced devastation around him. What likely started out as a good desire for Diotrephes to serve the church had been perverted into selfish ambition. It was wreaking havoc in his church it's helpful for us, I think, uh, to, to see this example and, and to look at what happens when you let self-love grow in your own heart. And we see from verses 9 to 10 at least four devastating effects of unrepentant self-love. And let's walk through these one by one. I've got them in your outline there. First, I'm, I'm going to call this egotism. Right? Egotism, self-love, self-infatuation, um, Choose your word, but I've chosen egotism. First, egotism leads to despising God-ordained authority. Look at verse 9. I wrote something to the church, apostolic injunction, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. We don't care what John the apostle has to say. 
Listen to what I have to say. John most likely had written another commendation letter uh, uh, regarding some missionaries, and it was being dismissed by Diotrephes. The church would have been given to the uh, the letter would have been given to the church, and when it arrived, Diotrephes said, "Oh, it's from the apostle John. We don't want that here. We don't know much about Diotrephes, but apparently he was likely an elder." or leader of the church that Gaius and he were a part of, and it was connected to John the Apostle. Apparently his name meant cherished of Zeus. So he was a pagan who had been born again, or at least had repented, at least on the surface, and had come into leadership in the early church. He had demonstrated faithfulness long enough. His theology was, seemed to be right, and he had gained a position of prominence. This was not a man whose life was a mess. His, his affairs were in order. And John's evaluation of Diotrephes is not theological. He doesn't say John, whose misunderstanding of the Trinity is just ter- or Diotrephes, whose misunderstanding of the Trinity is causing a wreck in the church. No, it's a moral issue. And he's a great he's got sound theology. Likely. But the problem is is the fruit of Diotrephes' self-love. The church, John in particular, had emerged in Diotrephes' mind as a rival to his own perception. Diotrephes loved preeminence. He thought he had something good to say, probably had amassed a following. And now he saw John as opposition to him. Someone who stood in his way. Although John's authority as an apostle was delegated by Christ, Diotrephes didn't care. It was only what Diotrephes thought. He wanted John the apostle to mind his own business. Diotrephes rejected his, John's apostolic authority, and he despised the authority structure that Christ himself had appointed for the church. Love for self grows into a full rejection of, of God's ordained authority. Right? Because self grows and grows and grows, and then self, which is supposed to be here, right? it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. And now, what matters is not what has God said, but what do I feel, or what do I want, or what do I desire? Right? We don't care what the apostles say. My self, my self-focus and my own uh, insights now supplant God's Word as the ultimate authority. This is where self-love leads. It may not be there yet, but this is what happens. Egotism led Diotrephes to despise God's authority, but secondly, it led him to destructive speech. At verse 10, verse 10 says, For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. Not only had Diotrephes rejected a previous letter from John, but he was engaged in a a smear campaign against the apostle. And he was unjustly accusing him. Describes an ongoing effort to disparage John the apostle with outrageous statements, maligning his character. 
It's a similar form. The word occurs in 1 Timothy 5.13 for the word gossip. Just chatter about John. Let's drop a um, a suspicious word about John the Apostle here and here and here. And let's see if we can tear him down in the eyes of the church. He doesn't care about the church. He doesn't care about Christ. He cares about his own exaltation. And if he could tear John down, push him off the hill, then Diotrephes could stand on top and get all the glory, which is what he wants. But unchecked egotism leads to the destruction of other people. Self-love leads to the tearing down of others. It's a fleshly principle within us that entices us to disobey Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only such as is edifying that may build another up. Hospitable people, loving people, are about building others up. But if you have unrepentant self-love in your heart, you're going to look for avenues to tear your rival down. And your rivals always change, right? Today it's her, tomorrow it's him. Um, once you get this person torn down enough, then you feel better about yourself and you can tear the other person down. This is what self-love does. It's all about gaining preeminence. The law of sin within us promises that by tearing others down, we will be satisfied, right? If I could just get preeminence, I'll be satisfied. But look at Verse 10, he says, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, but was Diotrephes satisfied with that? What does the text say? And not satisfied with this. It's not enough uh, to dismiss John's authority. It's not enough to tear John down. Diotrephes is not satisfied with this. He, He wants to take it to another level. And this is what sin does. It's insatiable. Right? You give sin an inch, it'll take a mile. Right? It's like a zip tie. Right? You just pull it and it clicks. You keep pulling it and it gets tighter and tighter. Proverbs 5.22 says, The unrighteous man, he, he falls into a snare that he himself has laid. Right? You, you get yourself into all sorts of trouble. Right? And it just closes in on you. And that's what sin does. It starts small, but it grows and grows. And now Diotrephes is ensnared by self-love and egotism. And now that has extended to the people around him. And sin does that, right? I mean, sin, your sin, my sin, it's, you know, it's like dropping a stone in the water and you have these concentric circles. Right? Your sin, the little sins in your life, affect the people that are closest to you. And that causes us the most grief. But it extends out. And man, when, when this with Diotrephes, this self-love had already wrecked his family. right? And it had already wrecked the people that he loved the most. And now it's extended to his church, most likely. I mean, it's clearly extended to the church. But along the way, he's destroyed all the people he loved, I'm sure, his family. Self-love is a big sin. right? It's a serious sin. And we see that with Diotrephes. But thirdly, we see that, dio- that egotism leads to the denial of hospitality. Right? Verse 10, he himself does not receive the brethren either. Right? Of course, right? that makes total sense. If he's only concerned with himself, well, he's not going to be hospitable to other people. He's not going to care about other people. 
He's not going to support missionaries. He's only going to do those things that are going to build him up. He may support a missionary that's going to praise him and sing his praises. As long as you are on Diotrephes' side, you have favor. And he'll use you to advance his own glory. But if you gain his ire, then it's bad news for you. This is what self-love does. It it no longer loves people and serves people. It uses people. Unchecked, unrepentant self-love no longer views people as um, people made in the image of God. No longer views people as ambassadors, really, for our Lord, Christians specifically. But it views them as a sort of stepping stool. How can I use this person to get what I want? Right? Isn't that what self-love does? Self-focus? And here, Diotrephes is using these people as a means to his end. And then fourthly, the fruit of egotism. Egotism leads to the, the abuse of delegated authority. It's the last part of verse 10. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Diotrephes' animosity towards John did not stop with the rejection of John's, well, John, but it extended to the rejection of John's disciples. Anyone who came in John's name would not find a welcome here. And so when John sends a letter of commendation with Uh, his missionaries, and they come, and they bring the letter, and they send it to Diotrephes, and they say, brother, it's great to see you. Thanks for bringing us in, and loving us, and showing us hospitality. And Diotrephes says, we have no room. You're with John. There's nowhere for you to stay. And they send the report back to the apostle John, and John hears, Diotrephes rejected us. It's flooring. How could a man who's a leader of a church reject missionaries being sent out by the Apostle John who had forsook everything to advance the gospel? How can that happen? Unrepentant self-love. It grows into an ugly beast. And we see that with Diotrephes. It's irrational and he, he not only rejected the disciples, if anyone in the church said, well, we have room. Right, we can take them in. Diotrephes took note, and then next week, this sweet family that took in uh, these missionaries are no longer among us. Diotrephes kicked them out of the church. That's a misuse of his authority. His authority, just like the authority of the elders of this church, and a parent's authority, right? is delegated, limited authority. And we operate specifically underneath the authority of Christ. And how does Christ exercise His authority over us? Through His Word, right? Well, Diotrephes had abandoned, I mean, he had jettisoned that. He he didn't care. His self had supplanted God's authority. And now he was devastating the church by kicking the most faithful among them out. It was abuse of delegated authority. It was terrible. So you see something of the devastation of self-love, right? So be on guard against that. We have to watch for self-love 
Because it grows and grows into the love for prominence and preeminence and egotism. So how do we fight against it? Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. So how do we fight against um, egotism? And how do we fight this little seed of self-love? Well, if we're going to not imitate what is evil, we need to know what the evil looks like. Right? What did Diotrephes, self-love, egotism look like? Well, it looked like this. He despised God-ordained authority. So what would be the righteous alternative to despising God-ordained authority? Submit to God-ordained authority. The question is, what has God said? You want to, you want to uh, repent of self-love and egotism? Well, determine with God's help to love the least among us, right? Submit to Christ and, his ordain, and God-ordained authority among us. So that means uh, submit to His Word, submit to the teaching of His Word, um, submit to the counsel that you're given that's biblical and godly. Right, this is a way that we can grow and change and, and put to death self-love and self-infatuation. Second, we don't want to imitate what is evil, so evil looks like destructive speech. All right? The righteous alternative, we've already mentioned, is edifying speech. Right? Self-love is focused on me, but love is focused on others. So we give of ourselves to see others built up. And we use our speech in a way that builds them up and not destroys Right, and that goes to every realm of your authority. Right, where has the Lord delegated, given you authority? In the church, we'll use your speech to edify. In your home, we'll use your speech to edify. With your children, make sure your speech is edifying. It's Ephesians four twenty nine. Third, egotism leads to the denial of hospitality. Don't imitate what is evil. Don't deny people hospitality. Be generous. Be kind. Be loving. Be over the top in your love to other people. And then fourth, egotism leads to the abuse of delegated authority. John says, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. So don't imitate the abuse of delegated authority that we see in Diotrephes. So ask yourself, what authority have I been delegated? Am I using this in humble submission to my Lord? Am I operating with my authority underneath the authority of Christ? Or am I a rogue parent? Or am I a rogue church leader, Sunday school teacher? Or am I living underneath the authority of Christ? And I'm operating as an as a ambassador for Him. It's not about my glory in parenting. It's not about my glory in teaching Sunday school or in, in being a, um, a husband. It's about Christ. It's about His glory. Don't try to rob Him of what he alone deserves, right? So, Lord, help us. Let's pray. Father, help us to imitate that which is good, to oppose that which is evil, and to put on loving, selfless hearts. Lord, would you rid us of self-love, rid us of selfish ambition, rid us of the love of preeminence, and help us, Father, by your 
grace to live lives full of love, specifically love for the least among us, Lord. We pray that each one of us would be characterized by the marks that marked Gaius. And Lord, that we would be characterized by selflessness, generosity, kindness. Father, that we would be zealous to do the things you've called us to do. Lord, would you preserve the unity of our church? Would you help us each to be agents of peace here? Blessed are the peacemakers, and we want to be blessed, Lord. So help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.